Welcome to the Rosedale Bible College Chapel Podcast. We hope you are challenged and inspired by today's message. Enjoy. My voice is uh, a bit raspy, and I'm hoping that will give me an additional measure of gravitas as I speak to you about the book of Revelation. But first, I'd like a Sister Jewel Byler to come up and read for us uh, today from Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, if you'd like to have that open before you. And would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Thank you, Jewel. Please be seated. Again, that's Revelation 15, 1 through 4. So, this morning's reading brings us to a moment of climactic anticipation in the book of Revelation. Heaven is unveiled to John the Revelator, and there he sees a great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Now a sign points beyond itself. It invites investigation. And here, John helps us to interpret the meaning of the sign. The seven angels and the seven bulls are a sign that God's wrath is completed. But what does this mean? So far, John the Revelator has spoken to his readers about two judgment cycles, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. In each of these judgment cycles, worldwide plagues are executed by the angelic servants of the Lamb. At the end of the seal judgments, in Revelation chapter 6, we read, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? After this first judgment cycle, it's clear to all people, from the very mighty to the very lowly, that the Lamb is in control. The horsemen of conquest, war, famine, and death. The sun, moon, and stars above, and the earth below. The Lamb is sovereign Lord over everything. Now, in the second judgment cycle, the seven trumpet judgments, much the same could be said. The Lamb reveals himself as the sovereign over all creation. Even the terrifying demonic creatures that come up from the abyss are subordinate to the Lamb. Yet, in the trumpet judgments, the accent is slightly different. Here, the restraint of the Lamb is highlighted. Now, while the trumpet judgments are still worldwide, it is a third of the earth that is burned up, a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the stars turned dark. Why this restraint? Well, the conclusion to Revelation chapter 9 gives us a clue. There, John reports that the rest of 
Mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of silver, bronze, and gold, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic, their sexual immorality, or their theft. God's restraint in the trumpet judgments is calculated to give fallen humanity time and space to repent. The plagues of the trumpet judgments would have been understood in the Greco-Roman world as signs of divine displeasure. Yet fallen humanity does not avail itself of this opportunity. They do not repent. They do not shift their allegiance from worthless idols to the Lamb who has revealed himself to them as the true and sovereign Lord. John has already shown these things to his readers by the time we get to this morning's passage, the vision of the seven bowls. The Lamb has revealed himself to the world as Lord. He's given the world opportunity to repent, and they have not. The martyrs, those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintain in the face of opposition, they cry out to the sovereign Lord, holy and true, judge the inhabitants of the earth, avenge our blood. The cry of the martyrs drives at the meaning of the heavenly sign that we read about in Revelation 15 this morning. The seven angels, the seven bowls, the sign of God's wrath made complete. God's wrath, it must be understood, is not simply God's anger. God does not fly off the handle. He does not need therapy. He did not face a choice between crucifying Jesus on one hand or taking a walk around the block to cool off. God's wrath is his final incompatibility with anything sinful. It is his just abhorrence of evil. It's a function of his eternal nature, which drives him to guarantee that he will do justice. He will bring wickedness to an end, and that peace will finally prevail on the earth under his reign. God's reign of holiness, justice, and peace is forever. The reign of evil is not. God's wrath is therefore an essential ingredient of the good news. God's wrath made complete is then very good news. And this helps us to understand what follows. John reports, I saw what looked like a sea of glass growing, glowing with fire and, and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. John's vision of the heavenly sign establishes a parallel between the victorious people of the Lamb and the Exodus generation. During the Exodus, God also executed plagues in a cycle of judgment against Pharaoh of Egypt. Like the people of the earth in Revelation, Pharaoh also refuses to repent with disastrous consequences. After the Passover and the plague of the firstborn that strikes Egypt, Pharaoh is forced to relent 
Moses and God's people flee Egypt in haste. But as the Israelites approach the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues God's people with his chariots. With Pharaoh coming and the Israelites panicking, God empowers Moses to part the Red Sea and the Israelites pass through the waters on dry ground. As the Egyptians pursue the Israelites through the Red Sea, God instructs Moses to reach his hand back over the waters. But it is the mighty hand of Yahweh that is displayed against the Egyptians when the Red Sea closes on them. The entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. On the far side of the Red Sea, Moses and the Israelites burst into song to the Lord. And the scriptures elsewhere call this a new song, a song on the occasion of a great military victory. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has thrown into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. And your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. God has brought judgment on Egypt hard-hearted and irrational in its persecution of the Israelites. He has avenged the blood of his people. In his wrath, God brought an end to the wickedness that reduces people to slavery. In a climactic, final way, God has shown himself to be mightier than even the mightiest king on earth. He's shown himself to be sovereign over creation, even the chaotic waters of the sea. Like the Exodus generation, the victorious people of Revelation 15 also stand beside a sea. They also serve the God who is sovereign over creation and all its petty kings. But in the book of Revelation, the stakes are higher. God's judgments are not merely poured out on Egypt, but on the entire creation. There is no single solitary square millimeter of creation where God is content to let evil go unchecked. God's adversary is not a mere national king like the Pharaoh of Egypt. It's the beast and the image of the number of its name who deceive all the inhabitants of the earth, stealing worship from the Lamb. The stakes of Revelation's battle are cosmic and final. It's about such a victory that the saints of Revelation sing the new song of Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
the parallels to Exodus are clear, but intensified. God, not Pharaoh, not Caesar, is the true Lord, sovereign over all nations. And his purpose is to gather every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, not just ethnic Israel, around his throne in worship. Yet there is a critical difference, another critical difference, between the new song of Exodus and the new song of Revelation 15. In Exodus, God's victorious people sing a new song beside the sea after God has brought a final judgment upon the army of Pharaoh. They sing in response because they have seen God's deliverance in the execution of his sovereign wrath. The Red Sea has been poured out upon God's enemies. But in Revelation 15, God's victorious people sing a new song beside a different sea. And they sing it before they see God bring a final judgment upon the rebellious world. The bowls of God's perfect wrath have not yet been poured out on his enemies. If, in Exodus, God's people sing a new song on the far side of the sea, in Revelation, God's people sing a new song on the near side of the sea, with Pharaoh's army still advancing at their back. They sing before they see the final execution of God's wrath upon cosmic enemies. But why? To be sure, Revelation celebrates the judgment of God's enemies. The fall of Babylon in, in Revelation 19 calls forth a threefold hallelujah and is just cause to proclaim that salvation and glory and power belong to God. But for Revelation, this is not where the final victory is won. For Revelation, the fall of Babylon is merely the outworking of God's victory. It is the application of God's victory. It is an effect of God's victory. But God's victory has already been accomplished. And to understand how this is the case, we must take care first to emphasize that the saints of Revelation 15 do not simply sing the song of Moses again, but the song of Moses and the Lamb. At the very beginning of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Revelation presents itself in verse 1 and 1, Jesus reveals himself to us as the one who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1 and 5. In the heavenly throne room, John hears the coming of the Lion of Judah, the triumphant heir of David's throne, heralded by one of the elders. And he pivots to look, and he sees there a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne of God. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall on their faces before the slaughtered lamb to sing a new song. You slaughtered lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals to enact the first judgment cycle, to bring justice to the fallen world. Because you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased for God purpose people from, from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
You made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. According to Revelation, victory is not foremost the final application of God's sovereign wrath to the forces of evil in the world. Rather, victory is in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Christ, the final Passover lamb, does not save us from a national judgment upon a worldly nation like Egypt. Rather, his all-sufficient sacrifice covers all the church's sin, the sin of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, once and for all. It's on the cross that final victory is won. All of our worldly instincts to the contrary, notwithstanding, it's the shameful death of Jesus on the cross that is good news of God's great victory. It's on the cross that God the Son reveals himself to us as the lamb who is slain from the creation of the world. Revelation 12 and 8. And yes, the King James gets the Greek right there. God has always been the kind of God who would take humanity to himself and die on the cross to provide atonement for your sins in love. There's never been a moment when there's been a different God. He's always been the slain lamb, always been a savior, and always will be. If the slain lamb is your Lord, it doesn't matter if Pharaoh's army is advancing at your back as you're pressed up against the sea with no prospect of escape. It doesn't matter if you haven't yet seen God's wrath executed upon the wicked. No hardship can take your song from you because Jesus has already won the victory. What does this mean to you? Well, it means assurance in the face of challenges, in the face of challenges no doubt. But I think it also means significantly more. At the recommendation of our dean of students, I looked into a psychologist named Jean Piaget, <laughs> who suggests that in late adolescence and early adulthood, i.e. the Rosedale years, many people enter into a messianic stage in human development. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Many young people are prone to adopt idealistic, and utopian social and political ideas with which, which they assert with a zealous vigor. Read through our own Messiah complexes, the book of Revelation is simply a reservoir of political cartoons and cudgels that we can deploy in the service of our own ideals. Our enemies are not merely people who disagree with us, perhaps ignorant and incautious though they be, They're dragons who need to be slain, beasts who need to be trodden down, and whores who need to be shamed. We arrogate to ourselves the privilege of waving holy war on the side of the angels against the forces of evil. We consider ourselves worthy to open the seals, or at least to sound the trumpets or pour out the bowls. This is true of liberals, conservatives, Baptists, Catholics, Mennonites, Mormons, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and atheists. Red, black, yellow, white, we're all depraved in his sight. We all like to put ourselves in the place of the Lamb. We would all assume the throne if we could. And if I were to quibble with the good Dr. Piaget, it would only be to clarify that if we enter a messianic stage in late adolescence or early adulthood, few ever leave it. (laughs) Most of humanity, and sadly many professing Christians, 
live in this state of arrested development. But even though we speak like this, dear friend, we're convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation, as Hebrews says. You see, friends, if Jesus is your Savior, then you, mercifully, are not. The confidence that comes from the blood of the slaughtered lamb can never, never become triumphalism or pride. We are a kingdom and priests set to reign on the earth through no merit of our own, but because of the blood of Jesus shed for you in love. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, says the Apostle Paul, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that none should boast. We're made of no finer clay than those from whom the smoke of torment will go up forever. Nevertheless, Revelation does present the Lamb's people as victorious, even as a victorious army. But if our calling is not to smite the wicked, how do we participate in this victory? How are we triumphant? I would refer you to Revelation chapter 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Revelation portrays the devil, as in the book of Job, standing in the heavenly courts as a prosecuting attorney. That's what the Satan means. The adversary. He accuses humanity of its sin before God. Yet in Revelation 12, when the Son of Israel, the crucified Messiah, Jesus, is snatched up to God's throne, the devil's case against the saints is thrown out. Jesus' crucified body, exalted to the right hand of God, is proof positive that atonement has been made and God's justice has been done. But it's not just the devil's case that's thrown out. The devil himself, who presses his case in vain despite Christ's finished work of atonement, despite God's just verdict, is disbarred from the courtroom. He's hurled down, ejected from the heavenly courts. And although he's been defeated, he continues to press his case against humanity. The devil is not, like God, Motivated by a just wrath against sin, a desire to see final justice done. No. The devil is moved by an irrational fury, a hatred of humanity, and a spiteful desire to see God's people separated from their Lord. But his time is short, and the seven bowls are full. So how do the saints triumph over the devil? by the blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. Our work is not to throw the devil or his beasts down. This has already been done. 
Our work is to point to the one who has thrown the devil down and to his blood shed in atonement for sin. Our work is to witness with our entire lives to the already finished work of Jesus, to keep God's commands and to hold fast to our testimony about him. Revelation 12 and 17. And we never do this more effectively than when we do what the saints of Revelation 15 do, when we stand on the near side of the sea and declare the already accomplished victory of God in Jesus Christ. We join in the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb as witnesses to Christ's lordship, not as lords and saviors unto ourselves, but as those who testify that Jesus is on his throne. And so this morning, from the near side of the sea, we join in the song of the saints and angels declaring, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns out all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And check out our other podcast series from our website at rosedale.edu slash podcasts. God bless you and have a good day.